from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, a conversation we have every week exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, your body, your spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. And I'm so glad you're here with us. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can visit totalleadership.org for information on, well, how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on SiriusXM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me, at Stu Friedman, unless my guest today decides I should no longer be on Twitter. That could happen. Hang on. Have you spent the past year in quarantine, working from home, living at work, Zooming nonstop? You've also no doubt sent how many emails? How many emails do you think you've sent in the last year. <clears throat> Despite what you might think, these emails are not making you more productive. In fact, they're probably making you less productive and more miserable. There's a better way. My guest today has made it his mission to help people develop healthy relationships with technology. I am delighted to welcome back to the show, Cal Newport. His new book, you've got to read it. It really is going to rock your world and help make it better. It's called A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. Cal, welcome back to Work and Life. Stu, uh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Well, let me tell folks a little bit more about you before we dive into the conversation about this great new book. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, where he specializes in the theory of distributed systems. He's a New York Times bestselling author who writes for a broader audience as well about the intersection of technology and culture, I would say, and humanity as well. He's the author of seven books, including most recently Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, which have been published in over 30 languages and about which we have talked on this show. He's a regular contributor on these topics to places like the New Yorker, the New York Times, Wired, all over the place. Uh, he's a frequent guest on NPR. His blog, Study Hacks, which he's been publishing since another era, 2007, attracts over 3 million visits a year. He lives with his wife and three sons in Tacoma Park, Maryland, and he is the only guest in our eight years on air to have made three appearances on this show. So, Cal, it's really great to have you back. Um, we have talked about your, your previous works, Deep Work and G Digital Minimalism, which, like A World Without Email, explore how technology is affecting us <sighs> hapless human beings. What... <laughs> What did you miss in deep work in digital minimalism that you're trying to get right? Or how is this like an, the, next, the next step in the evolution of your thinking and your, and your um, applied research? Well, Stu, first of all, I'm, I'm proud to be the first three-time guest. I, I feel like I should have a jacket or something. I'm not quite sure I that is that. now in the works. Excellent <laughs> idea. And I'll wear that with pride. Uh, so, so it's a good question. So there's there's two bifurcations I want to make here. Mm -hmm. So uh, deep work versus digital minimalism. Deep work was about the world of work. Digital minimalism was largely about our life outside of work. So mm -hmm. digital minimalism stepped away from the world of work and talked about all this time we spend on our phones, social media, online news, streaming videos, et cetera. So I think about my new book as being the natural follow-up to deep work. So with deep work, I was focused more on the personal and making this argument that we're underestimating focus. But actually, when we, when we look at something without distraction for a while, we tend to get more out of our brain and we should really prioritize this and we don't do enough of this. The big reaction I got to that book, which came out in 2016, was, Cal, I think you underestimate 
how difficult it is to find any time to do uninterrupted work. You don't realize the magnitude of the attractive force pulling us back to inboxes and Slack. It's we have to do this deep work at five in the morning or at nine o'clock. Our entire day is spent just talking about work and that caught my attention. Like why, why is that? This does not seem like we're getting, if we're going to be technical about it, a very good return on our capital investment and all these human brains if they're on email all day. So I asked a question, why do we work this way? And it was an epic story I uncovered. I actually started working on this new book in 2016. I've been working on it for five years. I put it on hold to finish digital minimalism and came back to it. Hmm. Uh, it was that complex and interesting of a story. And I finally got all the threads together. So, so that was an epic tale. Yeah. This, this a world of that email really addresses the, the ecosystem or the ecology of uh, our lives, our digital lives in a way that digital minimalism and deep work did not. Right. So digital minimalism talked about the ecology of our personal digital life. So it's really about we're on social media too much, looking at our phone too much. Uh, Mm -hmm. Outside of work, we're distracted by tech too much. Deep work acknowledged that technology was one of the reasons why we weren't focusing that much, but didn't get into why or what we would do about it. Mm. And that turned out to be a much bigger story than I thought. I thought when I was working on deep work that eh, we have a bad habit of checking email too much, we should check it less. When I looked into it, I realized the storyline there is actually much deeper, that we are, we are in a much bigger state of crisis than we realize in knowledge work. We have this mode of online collaboration that we've deployed that is really holding down productivity, really making people miserable. We're stuck in it for historical reasons that we the need to The hyperactive hive mind. That's the villain. That's the villain. So, I mean, to just set the stage. You have email in the early 1990s spread very fast because it solved pragmatic problems right? It was better than the fax machine. It was better than voicemail. It was better than memos. It did those things better. But in its wake came this new way of collaboration, the hyperactive hive mind that said, let's just figure things out on the fly with back and forth messages. That doesn't scale. And it has been a disaster for knowledge work productivity. It has scaled. The hyperactive hive mind has, is ubiquitous, as you well point out and demonstrate with, with compelling and uh, really heartbreaking examples. Um, but when you say it has, it doesn't scale, what, what do you mean? For the individuals involved. So mm-hmm. the hyperactive hive mind, let's just figure things out on the fly with back and forth messages. Mm-hmm. If there's just two of us trying to figure something out, it works really well. It's how throughout all of our history as a species, once we had vocal communications, is how we would coordinate. You know, hey, that mastodon's going over there. Come back this way. Watch out for that. Move over there. Ad hoc on demand. That's fine. But when you scale that up to 30 or 40 simultaneous interactions you need to have, seven colleagues, six vendors, two clients, the HR department, uh, and all of these different people, you're trying to have this back forth ad hoc, unscheduled back and forth communication. For the individual, it doesn't scale. Our brain can't do that. Ah. We can't keep track of that many conversations. And the only way to try to service that is to constantly check in on these channels. And that's where the problems start to arise. It has become ubiquitous, and uh, one of the many powerful quotes uh, that I take from this wonderful book, we take for granted our ability to pay attention. Uh, I think that helps to explain the explosion of mindfulness uh, training and uh, education in the last 10 years. Do you agree? Yeah, we thought about or took for granted this notion of, oh, I want to focus on this, let's just do it. And I get into the neuroscience in this book that, wait a second, paying attention is very difficult. I mean, first of all, just from a neurological perspective, it takes a lot of time and a lot of biochemical effort to even just move your attention from one target to another. It can take 10 to 15 minutes. You have to suppress networks. You have to amplify networks. And so if, for example, we just check an inbox once every five minutes. The problem is, is you're, you, you cannot change your attention from this to the inbox completely, then back again. And that, that colludes the whole, or that uh, occludes the whole process. It makes it very difficult to maintain concentration. I think we're just now realizing that our brain is not a computer processor. It's not something we can just throw agnostic instructions at and just executes them one after another without caring. It takes it time. There's a cost, there's a real doing. cost to, to attention switching. Yeah. And I think the engineer types that, the, that really developed a lot of our communication tools, they're very in, uh, influenced by microprocessors. Remember, a lot of these tools spread during the 1990s computer processor war, 386, 486, Pentium. And there's this metaphor of all that matters is reducing friction, 
so that the processor doesn't sit idle. So mm -hmm. if we can make communication faster, that's better. That means you have more things. You always have things to churn on. That'll be fine. But the human brain is not a computer processor. It cannot turn from an email to an unrelated task to an unrelated email like a computer processor can execute three commands in a row. That's not the way our brains work, and it's not working for us. So before we get into the principles that you lay out for what a world without email might look like, let's just go a little further into what you mean by it's not working. How is it affecting our productivity? How is it making us more miserable? And how, with a life of its own, does the hive mind really hurt us in the long run? So in the moment, the ability to just grab anyone anytime and go back and forth is convenient and it's easy and it's flexible. And that's part of the reason why it's so sticky. Mm. But when you have dozens of these asynchronous back and forth interactions going on, you have to keep checking your inbox because all of these digital ping pong balls are coming back across the net and you have to be there to hit it back pretty soon or That's things slow metaphor. down. Yeah. It's, but it's like we have 30 ping pong tables in front right, of us. Right. So that we're, we're running as fast as we can to try to keep up with them. Uh, this is why attempts to check your inbox less fail is because the drive oh. to check it is rational. This is actually, if this is how you collaborate is back and forth messages, then it's a problem if you're not there. That's why we can't fix this. It's a problem because you're because of the social anxiety of neglecting a commitment to a relationship that you care about. That and also this is just how the collaboration happens. If if in your office we just use back and forth to figure things out or make decisions, and you're not there, decisions get slowed down. Things mm -hmm. don't get decided. Like it's actually a problem. So the hyperactive hive mind insists that we check the inbox all the time. And we can't solve that with better personal habits because that's where the work is actually happening. Now, this is where the damage is caused because of that context shifting. Ah. If you check this inbox once every six minutes, like was the average in one really large study I, I cite often because I think it was well done, uh -huh. your mind is constantly trying to switch back and forth between emails that have completely different cognitive context and other work that's unrelated to the emails that you're looking at, and it can't do it. Remember, we're talking 10 to 15 minutes to actually switch your focus. So what happens when you quick quick glance every six minutes at something else. You initiate context shifts and then you, you abruptly stop the context shift and try to shift back to something else. It becomes a neurochemical pileup and it creates a cognitive catastrophe. We can't think straight, we get anxious and we get fatigued. It's why we get that mental fatigue by one or two in the afternoon and we give up trying to do anything useful and just sit there in our inbox. It's not because we're lazy. It's because we exhausted our brain by trying to make it switch its context back and forth, which it, it just can't do it. Cal, it's not how I you, think, the human, yeah. I think I need to take a nap now. So can I just get back to you in about 10 minutes? Cause my brain needs to rest. I'm just kidding. I do want to take a quick note here for our listeners. This is work in life on business radio, Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Georgetown professor Cal Newport. We're talking about his new book, a world without email. Yes, it can be. It can be. We're going to talk about how to get there, not immediately, but what the path might look like. A world without email, reimagining work in an age of communication overload. So our productivity is stalled in the ways that you've just described. Uh, our, our brains, our relationships with important people in our lives, how are those affected by the hegemony of the hyperactive hive mind? Well, it conflicts certainly with our social wiring. So we take seriously maintaining relationships, right? Because this was key to our survival. I need to have good relationships with my tribe members so that when the famine comes, they'll share their food. That part of our brain does not like the idea of an inbox that's constantly filling with communication from other people we know that we're not responding to. Mm -hmm. To a deep part of our brain, that is a five of a five alarm fire, right? This is a problem. We're ignoring people. We're, we're going to starve when the famine comes. And so, so it's, we get not, anxious. it's not a signal of, of my being a particularly anxious person. If I always have to like, Oh no, I don't want to let that person down. I must, I must get back to them immediately. That's normal. You're saying. Yeah, we can measure this. There's plenty of studies that show that as you increase the amount of this communication, stress and anxiety goes up. We can also measure people directly. I talk about a study where they put thermal cameras on people's faces and then they hook that up to their inbox and they can just check, you know, uh, email behavior directly creates the telltale heat blooms that indicate stress. Wow. So those 
those ways of, of being have evolved over millennia. Um, <clears throat> what does that do to uh, our lives that we are now living in this, you know, trying to play 40 games of ping pong at once kind of world? Well, we're miserable and we're miserable doubly over. So we have the first misery of you've given me a job to do. And then you've set up a way to collaborate on this work that makes it impossible to do the work. So that's just a, itself a sort of torturous configuration that really frustrates people. Then we have this extra misery of it conflicts with our social wiring. So we feel anxious all the time, like we're letting people down. That's terrible for the mental health of our workforce. Mm. And it creates burnout uh, and it creates dissatisfaction and it creates turnover. Mm-hmm. And how do you think it affects people's lives beyond work? What well, if when you, you have the... Go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, when you, when you have the hive mind, it makes it impossible to have boundaries between work and non-work because you have, again, all the ping pong tables up, all these balls coming back and forth. Even when the work day ends, you know, balls are on their way over the net. You're anxious about it. You know, they're, they're going to be waiting there the next morning with even more. And so the, the compulsion to, I need to check this after work. I need to check this in the morning. I need to check this on vacation. That's not a failure of personal will. That's not an addiction to email. I really did not like that Crackberry mm. style narrative that arose mm-hmm. when this workflow kept going up. It's not individuals being addicted to email. It's the underlying workflow necessitates it. So those lines between work and non-work, those go away. So batch processing doesn't work because? People need to hear from you. If the primary way that you collaborate is back and forth with messages, if you batch, none of these decisions get made. And that's going to create problems. And we, we can actually measure that if you batch process, people get more anxious because they know this stuff is piling up and they know it's a problem, which brings me to my big picture point, which is okay. we're never going to solve these problems in the inbox. This is why we failed to make progress on overload since it first became an issue in the early 21st century is we can't solve this with better habits. We can't solve it with personal will. We can't solve it with better norms. We actually have to replace this underlying workflow of just rock and rolling with back and forth messages with alternatives. We have to stop those messages from showing up in our inbox in the first place. We're not going to solve it by just being better about how we deal with them once they're there. This is big. And I know in your dedication to this wonderful new book, to your kids, may your future not be dominated by inboxes. That's the world you're imagining. That's the world you're envisioning. That's the world you're trying to make happen. All right. So what are the main principles for what that world looks like? Let's let's begin that journey. And uh, well, then we'll take a short break in a few minutes and, and come back to as much as we can in the, in the space of our conversation. What what are the, the key principles for moving from where we are now to a better world? Well, I, I list out four principles in the book, but the, the first one sets the foundation. Mm-hmm. I call it the attention capital principle. But the big idea here is that we need to think about knowledge work as if our main capital resource is this collection of human brains that we employ and their capacity to focus and put value on information. The question then is, how do we get the best return on this capital? Well, we know from sort of standard capitalist theory, there's different ways you can configure it. Some ways are going to give a better return than others. We're not doing those experiments right now, and we need to. What we need to think about more specifically then is, how do we actually want to collaborate on things. And what we're looking for here is trying to get the most value out of these brains while being as sustainable as possible so the brains don't burn out and we don't have turnover. Mm -hmm. The very first and fundamental principle is if you haven't been asking these questions of how do we actually want to collaborate on things, the default answer is this hyperactive hive mind of just constant back and forth messaging, and that's no good. So we have to just get in the mindset of saying, What's the alternative for this type of thing we do as a company? What's the alternative for this type of thing we do for a company? And we have to go process by process, just like they do in the industrial sector and say, is there a better way? Mm-hmm. That's going to be the overall mindset. Well, we can get the specifics soon, but that's the mm-hmm. overall mindset that's going to actually reduce this pressure on the inbox is replacing this hyperactive hive mind default with things that are more bespoke and optimized and specific and that play well with the way that our brains are actually wired. Because some work, the work of uh, a coordination, especially ad hoc communication about coordinating events and other ways in which you and I need to do something together, 
uh, there is benefit for the immediacy and flexibility and, and global interconnectivity of, of the various message systems that we're talking about, right? It's not like you're talking about eliminating uh, the, the kinds of communications that we're trying to improve, right? Right. The tool, the tool at email, for example, I think is a fine tool, right? It's better than fax machines and it's better than voicemail. And really, if I was going to give a more accurate title for the book, it would be a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow as the primary way that we collaborate. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Your, your the publisher didn't like that as a title? No, I, it would have been the, the first book to have a footnote on its title, just to try, just to, try to explain it. Uh, the thing we're really trying to optimize here, I think it's a big idea, is unscheduled back and forth messaging, right? So not getting rid of email. Email's great. If I need to send, look, I, I'm going to send you this file. It's great. I'm going to announce, you know, here's a new policy. Better than typing it out and printing it and mailing it to people in the mailbox. It's great for that. Mm-hmm. It's not good for back and forth coordination, right? Mm-hmm. Emails for sending information, not for doing coordination. So that's the mindset I'm trying to preach is the unscheduled back and forth requires you to stay in those inboxes because you have to service the ping pong balls. That's what we have to, as much as possible, get out of the inbox and move it to more scheduled ways of communication. So it could be with different tools. It could be with different rules. It could be with different timings. There's a lot of ways to get there, but we got to get away from, look, I got to keep checking this because the ball could come back across the net at some point, And I'm not sure when. So, so the, the principle of attention capital um, means identifying how you use attention and, and looking to see if that way is working or could be improved. Is that a, yep. is that a fair way of characterizing it or, or am I missing something? Right, that some ways are better than others and it's worth paying attention to, which mm-hmm. sounds obvious, but in knowledge work, unlike in the industrial sector, we don't do this thinking. We don't think, well, what's the right way to get this done? What's the effect on the human brain of our employees if we do this or that? We sort of leave that up to the individuals to figure out how to organize their work. And we just sort of work things out on the fly. And I'm saying, no, no, we have to evolve as a sector and start asking seriously if paying attention to things and producing value with our brain is, that's our equivalent of producing Model Ts. Well, let's think about what our equivalent is of the assembly line. In other words, let's get innovative and thinking about how we want to hook everything up to produce value. And there are people doing that. Uh, Jason Fried's been on this show a couple of times, and I think he's one of the people at Basecamp. Uh, he's the CEO of Basecamp that that you know about and have written about. What are some examples of people who have done just this, become more conscious in their organizations about how attention is 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 thought of as a resource? Well, Jason's a great example, actually. Just. The night before we're recording this, I did an event with Jason where we got uh, for the book launch, we went deep into some of these ideas uh-huh. and he's, he's had this thought. He's really out on his own in Silicon Valley. He's not in Silicon Valley, but in the tech sector, uh, he's really been ahead of the game and asking this question, well, what is the actual best way to work? And they have a ton of innovations, both in how they run their company mm-hmm. and in the products they produce. So Basecamp is a good example. That was their first product. They were web developers yeah. and they realized this emails back and forth with their clients all the time. This can't possibly be the best way to collaborate on working on a website. So they built a tool called Basecamp that among other things, kept all of the conversation about each issue in one place. And you could see all the conversation, you could see what's going on, all Mm -hmm. the files were there. Uh, Basecamp was an example of uh, answering the key question of, okay, here's a collaboration that has to happen what's the best way to actually do it if we want to respect human brains? And they've had a ton of innovations like that since then. Office hours, mm-hmm. four-day work weeks in the summer, uh, tools like Campfire, now their new email alternative, Hey. It's a, it's a company that's thought really hard about how do we actually want to do the work? Mm-hmm. They also hire on the basis of whether you can write. You have to be able to put sentences together that cohere and and are succinct and uh, are useful for the reader. Um, so it's it's not just a matter of the the processes of how work is organized, but also the quality of the talent that's uh, able to enact them. Yeah, and they have this mindset of like, let's get good people. Let's not give them too much to do. Let's let them do what they do best. 
mm-hmm. at a really high level. And that is probably in the end, the best way to take advantage of the brains you've hired, to hook them up to email channels, to overload them with dozens and dozens of tasks, to keep people stuck in their inboxes all day. That can't possibly be the best way to actually organize work in our current age of digital technology. So when we come back from this short break, uh, I'd like to get into some of the other examples of what you see as uh, kind of innovative practices that can help us break out of uh, the, the constraints of, of, a, of an email-driven world and into one that is, well, freer uh, and less miserable and, and, and more productive. Um, but uh, I also want to be talking about how you have applied these principles in your own life and also in your life as a parent. You've got three young kids. They're growing up in a digital world. Um, what are you doing to help them become more human in the, in the scale and scope of, uh, of uh, digital communication as it is affecting their lives? So stay with us, folks. We're going to get into that stuff when we come back. Just need to take a short break here. I'll be continuing my conversation with Cal Newport about his wonderful new book. It's called A World Without Email. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I run a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find greater harmony among the different parts of life. Having founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program 30 years ago, go to totalleadership.org for more information about what we do there, including free podcast versions of our shows after they've uh, had their run of uh, on-air distribution. Today, I'm speaking with Cal Newport, who's an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University and the author of a new book called A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. All right, Cal, what you're talking about, it's a big shift. It's a big shift, uh, but there's innovations happening as we speak. Who else is uh, doing work that is helping to make it a better, less email a constrained universe uh, that that you want to let our listeners know about? Well, I went looking for examples mm-hmm. of either teams or whole companies that had moved past this hyperactive hive mind workflow, and, and I could find them. Now, they tend to be smaller companies, mm-hmm. which would make sense. This is where you're going to see the innovation first is in situations where you have more flexibility. So it tended to be 20 person or less companies or teams that are, aren't too large, mm-hmm. but I think they're the, uh, they're the beacon that shows us what these changes are going to be like in the future. So I'll, I'll give one quick example. Okay. I, I talk about a UX design firm out of London and they were hardcore hyperactive hive mind. At first it was email you know, all the time, all the time. And then they got Slack they got even more hyperactive. And then one of their clients insisted that they joined a Slack channel with the client so the client could okay. bother them. So right? Slack, Slack uh, it, it, uh, it's like in hyperdrive, the hyperactive hive mind. Is that, is that what you're uh, in, implying there? Yeah, that's the right way to think about Slack. You know, recently when Salesforce made their acquisition offer to Slack, I, I wrote an article for The New Yorker about it. And the uh-huh. title of that piece was, Slack built the right tool for the wrong way to work. So basically Slack said, Mm. oh, I see what we're doing now. We're doing all this back and forth unscheduled messaging. Well, we can build a better tool for that than email. We're even faster. It's easier to search through. It's easier to have large conversations. So they made this way of working uh, slicker, but this way of working is no good. So yeah, so Slack does not get us out of the problem. It just actually, it gives us a cleaner interface for implementing this not very good Uh way of working. Too slick is Slack. Yeah, Slack is too slick. Say that two times fast. Uh, <laughs> I could do so that I, if I was focused. If, I yeah, could if you weren't checking your inbox. So, so what happened in London? So uh, they burnt out and they lost two engineers to burnout. And the, the co-founder said, enough is enough. I don't care if we go out of business. We're, we're not doing Slack. We're not doing email like this anymore. We're going we're gonna to try to rebuild work without it. And if it fails, it fails. But we can't live this way anymore. And they got rid of Slack. And they downgraded email to something that was mainly used for um, 
external facing people to send them. I mean, I actually had the co-founder open his inbox when I interviewed him uh-huh. and said, tell me what's in it. And it's, you know, an invoice from his accountant, uh, a support ticket from the IT firm that's doing their servers, right? Uh, and they use it internally, mainly just for private communication. So if I need to talk to you about your salary, I'm not going to put it on a base camp, right? Because it's private. Uh, so what they did instead is they moved to base camp uh, and they said, we're going to have these highly structured twice a day check-in meetings, real time, uh, largely remote companies. So they use video conferencing. We're going to get together real quick. Who's working on what? What's your obstacles? What do you need from other people to make progress on it before the next check-in? Great, go. And then they'd work. And then they took a couple other things, like the way they interacted with their clients and some of their workflows, uh, and they automated some of these things too. So they had a, a real clear process for how we, uh, they, they had to do this focus group type testing for UXs and they, autom- they made it all very structured. So there's no need to just go back and forth on email. And it was a company that had basically, there's no inbox to check. You mainly just worked and everything was kept in base camp and you checked in twice a day and it was fine. And they were so much happier. And he was kicking himself for not having done this in the very beginning. It's a, a workplace where people just know what's going on, what they need, and they mainly just work. Uh, and that, that, was, that was one of the first examples I came across when I was working on this book. And so that lifted my heart. <laughs> it, it lifted your heart? What do you mean? That that's possible. And how much happier. This is the theme that comes through a lot of these examples. The relief felt by the individuals once they uh-huh. switch and they didn't realize how much anxiety and stress and frustration they felt with the way they were working because we're just told that's what work is it's you're checking things all the time and when they switch to something different it's like the blinders fall off their eyes it's like wizard of oz when you move from the black and white to color <laughs> it just well, it's feels so like different the, there are shackles that have been removed from their from their shoulders their bodies and they can they can act with greater speed and, and levity. And, and actually just work, you know, it's like, I know what I'm doing and I work and when I'm done, I'm done. When the workday is over, the workday is over. I don't want to underestimate, you know, you shouldn't underestimate how humane that is as a way of actually doing things. So, so we've talked about uh, Basecamp. We've talked about this company in London. When you give these examples and in the conversations you've been having about them, uh, with other organizations, what's the typical response that you get, you know, from the, just the knee jerk naysayer? So what I found to be effective is if you come to a company that's doing a lot of email and you just say email's bad, do less email. It's a non-starter, but now we know why it's because that's the primary way they organize things. So they do a quick thought experiment. Well, if I just stopped checking email right now, mm-hmm. none of this stuff would get done. It would be a disaster. Right. So you get a very right. negative reaction. Right. But if you come in and say, there's this underlying workflow you're using and you don't have a name for it, but I'll give it a name. It's called the hyperactive hive mind. It's really bad for our brains. It's not a very good way to work. You can replace that with other things, other things that'll get the work done, but with less of the constant back and forth everyone's on board with that. I mean, it's just, if you can correctly identify a problem that everyone feels, everyone's on board with the solution. I think this is why we've had such a hard time making progress on this problem over the last 15 years is that we Mm -hmm. focused on the inbox, but people were very rationally responding. If I just stopped using email and did nothing else, it would be a disaster. So I think the key here is saying, I'm not telling you to stop using email. I'm telling you to change the underlying workflows that's forcing you right now to have to use email so much. So let's dig in a little further on how one would actually start to do that. What's, you know, aside from knowing that the hyperactive hive mind is destroying your life and your productivity and that you need to step back and ask, well, what can, how can we organize our workflow better? Um, What else in the, in the brief time that we've got, can you offer listeners about what, what you describe in a world without email about what they can do about it? Well, so this brings us to this process principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the notion here is that in industrial manufacturing, we figured this out real early in the 20th century, that industrial manufacturing is made up of processes. And there's different ways to implement these processes. And we should always be thinking about how we can make them better. You know, how do we build the magneto? That was the first thing that Henry Ford innovated. And they figured out that if we had this table that three people stood at at the same time, and the parts were underneath the table on a shelf, and they passed it from one person to another, oh, that produces a magneto much faster than the way we were doing before, which was one craftsman at a desk trying to actually build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. We need to have this similar mindset and knowledge work. 
uh, we don't just sit in an inbox. Our job is not sending emails. If, we, if we're careful about thinking about our jobs, we realize, oh, there's a lot of processes underneath there. Maybe we don't name them. Maybe we don't write them down, mm-hmm. but there's things we return to again and again that we do. That's a core function of what makes us valuable to our organization. We need to name them and we need to say for each of them, how do we actually want to implement this? Because if you have not had that discussion, the default is the hyperactive hive mind. And so thinking about processes, all of our work is processes. How do we want to do them? That mindset shift is the foundational initial shift you have to make before you can actually start successfully tinkering with things. Okay. Can you give an example or two? Sure. All right. So some of them are real easy. Like, let's say our job requires us to have lots of meetings because we, whatever, it's just the way our job works. We have to discuss new client proposals or something like this. And a lot of your emails going back and forth might be trying to schedule meetings, right? Well, once we know that's a process and we say, okay, we want to try to optimize this. And our goal is minimizing unscheduled back and forth messaging. You can say, ah, there's a schedule tools. We can use x.ai or we can use schedule once we can use Calendly. And now there's a way that we can set up these meetings with one message instead of seven back and forth. Mm-hmm. That's much better. Now let's look at a much more complicated example. Let's say we have a one-off project. We have to do a big marketing uh, campaign for a new product. And it's, it's not something that we do all the time, but we have a team that has to work on this. Well, what's the right way to actually structure the collaboration required here. And I give an example in the book of where they said, let's use a shared task board. Uh, They used Flow, but you could implement this with Trello or you could implement this with Asana. There's a lot of tools. And all the tasks for this project, let's have on the shared board and let's assign them. So it's really clear who's working on what. And let's let their column indicate their status, what we're waiting on, background information, stuff that we're actively working on now, stuff we need new information on. Let's attach all the files and information to the cards. And let's have a, these highly structured status meetings at fixed times where we very quickly say, what are you working on? What do you need? Who do you need it from? Update the board and let's go, right? That's also process optimization. You're saying, here's something we have to do. We have to run a marketing Mm -hmm. campaign. We don't want a ton of just unscheduled messages. Then we look at the toolkit and say, what might work here? And so, uh, you know, a lot of examples, a third quick example, this is Jason Mm -hmm. Fried does this, Mm -hmm. uh, we have experts in our organization that answer questions. It's useful. They know a lot about JavaScript or whatever. Let's do office hours. Because again, what we're trying to do here is we say, oh, here's a process. It's the experts giving information to people process. We want to minimize unscheduled messages. Great. Let's say here are the times when you ask the experts questions. Boom, 100 emails are out of their inbox each week. Huge boon to productivity. So that's examples of this general mindset. Identify the process, minimize the back and forth. Identify the process, minimize the back and forth. Repeat until your inbox is not even that interesting anymore. Your inbox not interesting? Cal, I can't imagine that your inbox is uninteresting. Well, okay, let's, let's, be, uh, let's be a little bit clear about it. It can contain interesting things because again, email is great for sending information. Yes. So, hey, you can get lots of interesting things in your inbox, like an invitation to come on an interesting radio show there you or go. Uh, an article about your book. Email's great for that. I don't want people mailing me that stuff and I don't want to hook up a fax machine. Uh, by interesting, I mean an urgent sense that if I don't check this, bad things are going to happen. It's that urgency. The urgency and, and the anxiety of if I don't check this, bad things will happen. Folks, you're listening to Work and Life and I'm really glad you are. And I hope you're learning as much as I am from this wonderful conversation with Cal Newport about his great book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. We're on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Uh, I've got so many more things I want to ask you about, Cal. Uh, you've given us a couple of really good examples of, of what it means to just rethink how you do what you do with the important principles in mind, knowing that uh, attention uh, and the switching of it uh, is, is something that you, you can pay attention to and do something about making it just more efficient and giving people a greater sense of control. Another one of the reasons we know that the back and forth on email or Slack doesn't work is because the emotional content that such messages often convey that uh, will get lost or confused or misinterpreted and create all kinds of other kinds of uh, stresses and strains. And so uh, actual real-time synchronous voice-to-voice or uh, in-person is, is, is much better. So many good reasons to rethink how we get things done. Um, How do you then create, 
appropriate boundaries in your life so that you can indeed attend to the other parts of your life. And, and especially when you're living at work and working from home, as we, most of us are in the pandemic. I mean, I argue that boundaries follow processes. So if you, if you try to do boundaries without processes, it's very difficult, right? So if you don't change anything about the underlying processes by which you collaborate and you just say, I want boundaries. Uh, I don't want to do email after work. I want to have three hours in the middle of the day to do deep work or whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to maintain those boundaries because they are going to be in opposition to this hive mind that's saying, look, we need you to answer this message. Mm -hmm. If you have processes though, with boundaries in mind, then you can actually have a lot of success. So we talked about that company in London. Mm -hmm. There's no problem having any work life separation there because the way they coordinate leaves no room for coordination after work hours. Hmm. Right. I mean, you could, I guess, log into Basecamp and check in on what's going on, but there's no, there's no questions. There's nothing piling up. There's nothing that you're going to find at seven that wasn't there at five. The process gave us the boundary. Uh, if there's a certain type of communication you've been doing with people in the hive mind, it makes you uncomfortable. You could try to put up boundaries like, look, I don't like to coordinate this way, but if you had a process that gave an alternative way of scheduling this, that's better. There's this famous example from uh, Tim Ferriss's book the four hour work week back when he was running a manufacturing a drug manufacturing company. And there was some clients that were really disruptive and rude and mean to him. And it was really hurting his mental health. The mm-hmm. solution wasn't just to put up a boundary of, you know, uh, don't talk to me that way or this or that. They actually, he actually changed the process of actually, here's how it works. Now you fax your order in and it needs to be in 24 hours ahead of time and this, and if you don't, then I, you know, uh, it's not going to get processed. And if, and if, if that's not good with you, then we don't need to work together. Mm-hmm. And one of them left and two of them stayed. He never had to talk to him again, right? Processes uh, are a much better source of mm-hmm. boundaries than just trying to put the restrictions in place on a disorganized underlying way of working. So this, this requires, does it not, that one has the legitimate authority or power to change processes, right? Yes and no. So this is, it's a good point. Um, let's say you're an employee and have no power over this. Mm-hmm. And, and let's go even farther and say that your boss hates Cal Newport, right? So, so they're not going to, they're not going to, I've heard of that either. guy. No yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Real, real loser. Right. But okay. I guess there's still a few out there. Um, what you can still do in this situation is asymmetric process optimization. And this is something that I found very encouraging hearing from people when I was working on the book. Mm -hmm. If just you as an individual do this exercise of identifying your processes. And the best way to do this, by the way, is your inbox. Just every message you get asked a question, what is this actually connected to? Like, what's the underlying thing I do Mm -hmm. repeatedly that this message Mm -hmm. is a part and do this for one day. You'll have the whole list of your processes for Mm -hmm. each ask. What can I do given what I can control Mm-hmm. What can I do to reduce unscheduled messages? You can do a lot. Mm. Now, I don't recommend telling people you're doing this if you're in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Don't send your boss a big lecture you know, about the hyperactive hive mind. Don't put on an autoresponder, God forbid, where you're trying to explain to everyone your new system. Just do it. I've just read Cal's new book, people. You should too. Stop bothering me. Is not a I mean, message you should send? Well, as a correction, you should buy copies of the book and send it to everyone. That's always good. The key thing is, though, is you need to buy them extra copies because, you know, they might need one at home and one at work. So, so yes, you need to buy many copies of the book. um, But beyond that, just do it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And one thing I've noticed, for example, is part of this can be solved with social dynamics. So if you move to scheduling software Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to go 10 rounds with your boss to set up a meeting, Uh the key is just to pitch it right. And be like, you know, Stu, you're, you're super busy. Uh, so what I did is I've just listed out like every time I'm available. So now you can just find a time that works for you because I, I don't want to mess up your schedule. Oh, I'm trying like, oh, to make life the... easier for you. Yeah. In other words, Cal's making my life easier. Yeah, good. But really what you're doing is uh, I don't want all these back and forth. You can also just explain processes upfront without calling on processes. This works well. You're like, hey, you know, Stu, we have to work together to get this report out. Here's what I'm thinking. And, you know, I'll have a draft in the Dropbox by noon on Monday. Uh, you do whatever you want to do on Monday afternoon. I'll pick it up again Tuesday morning to integrate your changes. I've CC'd the designer on here. Hey, designer, Bill, uh, noon on Tuesday, grab the final version of the Dropbox and do the production. Technically, I've just uh, recruited us all into a process that's going to get this report done with zero additional unscheduled messages. 
but I didn't call it that. And as far as yeah. you and producer Bill is concerned is, oh, great. There's a plan. What do I need to do? Look at this tomorrow. Great. I got it. And you're moving on. Yeah. I would call that leadership process. Cal. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot you can do. Mm-hmm. Now, when you want to move up from the individual level, my argument is you don't want to move beyond the team scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a perfect world, each team within an organization would work together to figure out these processes for themselves mm-hmm. and to work out their rules for how they communicate with other teams. Mm-hmm. If you try to do this from, let's say, the C-suite level down, that's very difficult. It's not flexible. And you're going to end up with bureaucracy. And that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be worse if you have arbitrary processes that don't work and you feel like someone else put them into place and you had no say in it, mm-hmm. that's going to explode. And that's so not going to be either. owned at the local level, any sorts of adjustments, uh, kind of like what Leslie Perlow brought to us uh, in uh, Predictable Time Off, I, which you write cogently about as, as another example. Cal, we're just about at the end of our time. I have to ask you, how's this playing out in your real life? Uh, you've got three young kids. Um, you're, you're obviously super productive. Um, what do you do to, to, to manage, you know, the attention principle in your own world that enables you to be the father you want to be, the person you want to be beyond your work? What I've always done is worked backwards from the goal of here's my work hours. You know, roughly speaking, this corresponds to the kids in school slash in childcare. All right. I want my work to fit in there. And then I work backwards from that to say, what do I need to do to make that possible? And it actually forces a lot of innovation. It forces innovation in terms of what I take on my plate for sure, Mm -hmm. because, hey, if I take on too much, I'm not going to succeed with that goal. But it also forces innovations with how I actually do my work. Like what? Well, if I, for example, just gave myself over to the hive mind, like let's just email back and forth with people all day. uh, Let me be on social media all day. Mm -hmm. There would be very little time left to actually write books or write academic papers or prep classes to teach. And I wouldn't make the nine to five. So I don't do Mm -hmm. that. And so Mm -hmm. I've never had a social media account. That's a large reason why I want to get my work done in nine to five. Uh, I'm my email, I'm difficult to reach by email. I don't have a public facing general access email uh, mm-hmm. because I want to fit within these work hours. I, uh, I annoy people occasionally because you know, I might not see an email for a couple of days, which if you're in a hive mind shop might blow your mind. But in my world, uh, I'm mm-hmm. time blocking my time. Some days are just completely filled with deep thinking. I'll get to it when I get to it. Uh, and so I'm very careful about what information I let into my life, what obligations I let in my life, and how I actually coordinate with people to get it done. Even this book tour, mm-hmm. my publicist has to talk to me a lot, the book interviews, but I set up a process with a shared document that I check twice a week because I didn't want the, the back and forth all day long. Mm-hmm. Of, what about this time? Can you do mm-hmm. this? Is that mm-hmm. time going to work? It's a little bit more work up front, but it's worked fine. All of that comes from this mindset of I have limited hours I want to make the most out of. So I really care about how I actually organize and execute my work. I think that's the big idea, right? Is is just to be conscious of your time and attention and to treat it as the precious, precious asset that it is in your life. I mean, for example, if after Deep Work came out, which was a successful book, if I had a big social media presence there probably would have been a pressure to be like, let me be on there all the time. This is great. Yeah. People are paying attention to me. People mm-hmm. care what I have to say. And that might've been nice. Maybe even had sold more copies of deep work, but there's no way that in the four years since I would have written two additional books mm-hmm. because I wouldn't have had the time, you know, my attention would have been thinking about that, worried about that, getting excited about that, suddenly getting upset when people are mad at me. So yeah, it, it matters what, you, what respect you pay to your brain. It can only do so much. It can and so only you have to think so much. critically. See that, yeah, you that, that sort of humility and, and grasp of the limits of your life's, you know, attention and, and just the breaths you take that, that, that enables you to be uh, more focused and conscious and, and deliberate about the things that really do matter to you. So how are you training your kids with respect to technology? Well, the thing I have a healthy respect for is it's a, a thread that goes through all my work on tech and culture is that tech has unexpected ecological effects. When you introduce a new technology to solve one problem, uh, it can cause a lot of unexpected side problems. It's like bringing a bunch of snakes to your island to, to take care of the rat problem. And then next, year, next thing you know, your island is full of snakes, right? This stuff is complicated. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very cautious and wary 
about, okay, I see this tech promises this and that's fun, but what's the side effect going to be? What else is it going to change? And because of that, I approach technology with a very intentional mindset of Mm -hmm. this is important to me. How do I deploy tech very carefully to achieve that? And I bring that mindset to my kids. I just want to be very careful about what tech we're letting into their lives and making sure it's for a particular purpose that we can Mm -hmm. understand how to control it. I'm not a big believer of just throw things into your lives, your kids' lives, because it's around and it's interesting and it's how Mm. you become tech literate. When you do that, you underestimate the potential unexpected side effects or Mm. consequences, which we know are legion in our modern world of digital innovations. So in 15 seconds, what's the recent example of your making a conscious choice about what to include or exclude in your eight-year-old's life, digitally speaking? Well, we're, we're very wary about anything that's online. Hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm okay with, I don't mind screens. I'm a kid of the eighties. We watch a lot of TV. Like it's fine. If you're going to watch a show or you watch more shows on a day, we're busy. I'm very worried about being exposed to the online world where hmm. things have been engineered hmm. to snare that brain and keep you there. Kids brains mm-hmm. can't handle that. Mm-hmm. So that's a good principle to follow. Uh, what, what's your greatest hope for their future? Again, real, real quick, because we are at the end of our hour. Uh, in their future, I think we're not going to be slavish to inbox in work. And I think we're going to be a lot less addicted to things like our smartphones and life outside of work. I think we're working out the kinks of our relationships with these innovations. And those relationships are only going to improve as we keep working on them. And you're helping us get there. Cal, thanks so much for joining me on the show. How can listeners find out more about your work and the new book? I have a website, calnewport.com. That's where I write my newsletter and a podcast called Deep Questions, where I talk about all of these issues, uh, answering questions from my readers. Awesome. Thanks again, Cal. Thank you, Stu. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, well, email me. Oops. Friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks to Patty Hall, her stand-in today, Dana Cash, and my sound engineer, Chris Tooks. You made it all happen for us. I am Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening, folks. It's Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. We'll see you next week.